Well, it's basically a, a portrait of Israeli society at a critical juncture in the country's history. So it's it's a journey through the society. Um, and essentially, I set out to try and answer the questions of who are the Israelis today? What do they want? What binds them together? And what threatens to tear them apart? So it very much speaks to today. It's, uh, in a way, a journey through Bibi's Israel, the Israel that's been very much shaped by the Prime Minister, Prime Minister Netanyahu, the longest-serving Prime Minister. But it also goes way back to the roots of the divisions that we're seeing today, pre-state um, rivalry between Begin, Ben-Gurion, and the generational change that's happened since. So what were the various um, subgroups or tribes, if you like, that you examined in this book? Um, I hope all of them. I very much went through Jewish and Arab society, religious and secular, ultra-Orthodox, new immigrants, uh, older immigrants, the veterans, the state builders, the soldiers, the settlers, um, you know, really... Uh, you know, we go through Ethiopian Israeli society, um, high tech, um, the high tech community. So really trying to very much give a broad but deep dive into who lives here and what do they want. <laughs> Is there any conclusion you draw at the end of the book? Well, I think, if anything, my takeaway was um, but, you know, it's the hope and the fear. I think the hope because um, I found that everybody from whatever sector of society I was looking at, everybody wants to be here. Everybody feels very strongly about this place, very passionately engaged. Um, and nobody's going anywhere. So however tough the problems are, somehow, you know, people are going to have to work it out. Um, but then there's the fear, and the fear is an existential one. Um, unlike many countries, you know, when you wake up in the morning in Israel, you literally wonder what this place will be like or if it will be Israel in, in 50 years' time because of the various uh, social, economic, political, traject uh, demographic trajectories that we're on. I remember studying um, Israeli politics at university in Britain many years ago, and one of the theories then was it was the conflict, it was the external threat that was the glue uh, keeping uh, the fabric of Israeli society together. And if that disappeared ever, even though it doesn't look likely that's going to disappear any any day now, that if that disappeared, the, the various um, uh, segments within Israeli society would tear each other apart, the divisions would grow. Do you think that's um, um, one conclusion we can draw from your book, looking at all uh, uh, or most of the, the, uh, the various segments individually? Well, it's a good question. I think one of the things that I found on my journey and that comes out in this book is that Perhaps Israel is better at dealing with its outside enemies than it is with dealing with its own internal problems. Um, when there is a war, yes, Israelis generally, the majority will pull together. 
Um, and, you know, just look at today, we've seen the, the massive protests against the judicial overhaul plans of the government and the pilots and hundreds of reservists, if not thousands, from the most elite units threatening that they won't show up. Um, and, and now we see in the last uh, 48 hours of this latest round with Islamic Jihad in Gaza, how, you know, I, I don't think there are any pilots that didn't show up. I mean, they had 40 aircraft in the air on that first night. Um, so I think there is still an element where the country pulls together. Um, but the impulses of the, the internal divisions just seem to be stronger today than, you know, a very changing landscape of Israel's external enemies. I mean, when you look at the Middle East, Israel is now accepted by more countries in the Middle East than it ever was. Let's take one of the main tribes, if you like, within Israel today, the Arab um, society, or as many, as many of them like to call themselves Palestinians with Israeli citizenship, 75 years of um, a trend of integration, but we've had the uh, we had the terrible events of the of the year 2000 uh, when uh, Israeli police shot and killed Arab protesters on the roads in the north, particularly a few years ago during one of the Gaza um, wars. We had um, terrible uh, internal strife, pogroms committed by Arabs in a number of mixed towns. What does that say about uh, um, the attempts to integrate Arabs within Israeli society? Is it getting worse? It's getting worse and it's getting better at the same time. Um, there is an inherent paradox, in a way, in, in being a Palestinian citizen of Israel. Um, and many of the older generation obviously refer to themselves much more as as Arab Israelis and not Palestinians, but in and the, it's more the younger generation and especially among the intellectuals, where there's much more of an insistence on putting the Palestinian identity first. Um, but even so, any any Arab citizen of Israel does have Palestinian identity, does have an affinity with the Palestinian nation. Um, and yet, at the same time, Mark, when you look at the society, the Arab society here, um, and how it's developed over this 75 years and, and the generational change, I think what you see or what I see is that it's really developed a very unique, special identity of its own. So the Palestinian Israelis or the Arab Israelis, they're not the same as the Palestinians in the West Bank or in Gaza or in Jordan, or living in the Palestinian diaspora in Detroit. They have their own very, very special identity now, and it's very much a part of this country. They want to be here. They're not going anywhere. Um, they're becoming more educated um, than, than ever before. And interestingly, it's a lot of the women, it's more women who are going to, to the Israeli universities than the men. Um, because the women have less options of, of earning money as uh, building contractors or whatever. Um, and, and there's very interesting development that both uh, emphasizes the Palestinian identity and the alienation and distrust of the state because of 
the many decades of, of discrimination and a feeling of not fully belonging and not being fully accepted. And at the same time, this very uh, contradictory uh, trajectory of, of becoming a, a very integral part of Israel and, and not, again, not going anywhere. Another very distinctive um, element within Israeli society is, of course, the Haredi and the ultra-Orthodox. Does your book um, uh, look at them? Absolutely, yeah. I have a long chapter on the ultra-Orthodox, and it, it was fascinating for me because I was actually working on that chapter mostly during the uh, COVID period. And, of course, that was an incredibly... Uh, a kind of inflection point, if you will, for the Haredi society here, where suddenly um, many Haredim were beginning to question the wisdom of rabbis who were telling them, you know, to flout the lockdown laws. <laughs> and uh, you, you had this sort of distrust and you had uh, a spike in the number of, of younger people leaving the ultra-Orthodox community um, and, you know, you also had uh, much more internet coming into the homes. People had to somehow be able to connect to even carry on with the yeshiva study online or work, be able to work from home. Um, so it had a quite a profound uh, effect on society. And ultra-Orthodox society here, as you know, it's very varied. It's not homogenous. There are many, many different shades and varieties of, of, of being a Haredi here. Um, and the chapter very much looks at the, the, what's going on within Haredi society. So you've got the you know, more modern working Haredim, um, and you have the, the sort of hardcore, um, you know, who, who still uphold full-time Torah study as the ideal, um, and, and uh, you know, looking at the change going on within Haredi society and how Haredi society itself is grappling with its place in this society uh, was a very fascinating journey for me. And another fault line, of course, historically um, in modern-day Israel was always between the Ashkenazim and the Sephardic Jews, the Mizrahim, those who came from... Uh, Arab country, Arab-speaking countries. Um, in the 1950s, when many of them had just arrived, it was very rare that we had uh, um, sons and daughters from Ashkenazi families marrying um, those from Sephardic families. Today, um, I think it's fair to say that most extended families in Israel, it's very rare to find that there has been no intermarriage, if you can use that phrase. Yeah, that there's been marriage. no... <laughs> There's no more purely Ashkenazi or purely Sephardic family. So in that sense, the integration there is working. Yeah, but it's interesting, Mark, because as you look at the generational change within the Mizrahi half of the Jewish population here, you see that the old resentments die hard. You know, that they're, even as, as you're looking at younger generations of more educated and more worldly uh, young people. I mean, still, you have this, uh, the, you know, what we're seeing in the identity politics here um, and the, the so-called ethnic demon that keeps being uh, uh, pulled out at every election time. And, you know, in a way, with generational change, you would expect 
the old rifts and resentments to fade away. Um, and in fact, I think with the awareness and consciousness and uh, political activism of, of some of the younger generation, it's not going away. They're just facing it head on. And, you know, it's, it's coming to a new phase, really, because in, in many ways, they, what many of them told me was that their grandparents and parents who came and were in the Mabarot, the transit camps, you know, they, they were just kind of thankful to be able to get through the day and get through the month and, and you know, try and eke out a living. Um, and, you know, we're not thinking too much <laughs> about uh, land issues and resources and, uh, you know, all these other issues. But, but the younger generation are now looking back and digging back through the archives, making documentaries, examining what their parents went through and what their grandparents went through. And, and so, you know, that I would say rather than the resentment having faded and just going away, they're actually grappling with it now in a very head-on way. It sounds like a fascinating read, the book. Do you think um, someone um, who, who finishes reading your book will be more optimistic than when they started or less optimistic? Or will each person, will each reader make up their own mind? Uh, <laughs> I mean, I, you know, more or less optimistic? I, I think maybe both. <laughs> um you know, I would say that, you know, you can't really understand what's going on in Israel today and the scenes we've been seeing here in the last two or three months without understanding where it all comes from. And I think what the book will give people is is that understanding. It's it's a journey of, of you know, where this has all come from um, and and to a degree where it's going. And so I think, you know, people will not leave it feeling, you know, totally depressed and like we're doomed. There, there are existential problems facing this country. Um, but if you also look at the dynamism of the place and the energy and this uh, passion, as I said, and sense of belonging, it also does inspire quite a lot of hope. And finally, um, listeners who are interested in purchasing um, a copy of The Land of Hope and Fear, how can they uh, obtain the book? Ah, oh, great question, Mark. <laughs> it's it's uh, available, obviously, on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Books A Million, Bookshop.org, all, all the usual online booksellers, um, in hardback and also as a Kindle ebook and in an audio version. Um, being narrated by a wonderful actress uh, who's not me. So <laughs> um, I'm not sure at this stage if, if the Israeli book chains have put in their orders. Uh, I'm not aware if, if you'll be able to go on May the 16th into a bookshop here and pick it up yet, but uh, it's certainly available online from any, any one of the, the usual booksellers. For, for your listeners who are in the UK... Uh, and Australia and New Zealand, I actually have uh, a UK publisher, UK and Australian publisher, Scribe, who are bringing out um, their own version of the book. It's the same book, different cover, um, but their publication date, rather than being next week, is actually uh, in August. So 
if you're trying to order from Amazon UK, it will tell you you can't you can pre-order, but you're not going to get it till August. 